Well, greetings, Faith Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Delaware. At least that's where I hope this video is going. My name is Kyle Hackman, and I count it as an honor to be invited to speak at your missions conference, even if the circumstances require it to be digitally. I've been greatly enjoyed getting to know your pastor, Pastor Jim Brown. I've loved trying to use his gifts and skills to be a blessing to Canada. I've also enjoyed getting to know John Shefflin, who I serve on Mission to the World Committee with. And I wish I could have gotten to know each one of you and spent more time uh, with your pastors and your elders. But the circumstances are such that this will have to do for this year. A little bit about me. I am a pastor in a missionary of sorts in Toronto, Ontario, in Canada. I live here with my wife, whom I've been married to for 13 years. We have four daughters, nine, seven, five, and three. And we are currently practicing social isolation, social distancing, like I'm presuming your city is as well, which means we are going crazy. Earlier this week, I set up a tent for the girls to get them out of the house and much of this sermon was written in that tent, and for a while I thought it was going to have to be recorded in that tent. A little bit about me, though. I grew up in St. Louis, Missouri, before moving to Chicago. I lived in Chicago for about eight years, and I've been in Toronto now for ten years. I came here as an associate pastor of another church in downtown called Grace Toronto Church, and two and a half years ago, three years ago, I was called to start a new work in the east end of downtown Toronto. The east end of downtown Toronto is considered the, the sort of last refuge of the family looking for an affordable place to try to live their urban lifestyle and raise children. And so it consists of about a quarter of a million people. And in the last 10 years, roughly 100,000 homes have sold. If you watch House Hunters International, you'll know a thing or two about the Toronto housing market. Houses went from 300,000 to 500,000 to over a million in a short period of time. And as new and young families began to move into the East End, my family also moved and lived here. We found it a great place to live. It was safe. It was beautiful. It was well-planned. The transit was well-structured. But as we looked around our neighborhood of some a quarter of a million people, we noticed that all the churches that existed in our neighborhood were started prior to World War II. And also, as I got to know the evangelical churches in our neighborhood, we found that less than a thousand were worshiping in English on Sunday at an evangelical churches. And so from the beginning, very early on in my time in Toronto, I felt a calling to consider planting here, which really came to fruition about three years ago, to plant a church which would help the Christian families who are moving uh, to this neighborhood and doing their best to raise children in this neighborhood, but also to do our best to reach out to these families who are buying up the houses all around us and trying to raise kids here in the city. Many of my congregants uh, send kids away to school and they don't know a single Christian in their school with their children. And it's been our goal. We've been at it for about two and a half years and it's been a challenge, but it's also been extremely encouraging. We've had the great delight of seeing people who have been far from the Lord come back to know the Lord, the great delight in seeing people explore Christianity. We've also had the unfortunate experience of being pushed away and we're excited and thrilled for what lies ahead for our church. This morning, I want to look at Mark 6, and the question I want to think through is a little bit uh, self-serving. Why is it that some of the greatest places to live 
a place of great safety, a place where people are kind and love their neighbors? Why is it that an area like this seems to reject the gospel of Jesus Christ so much? Why is that the case? So keep that in mind as you listen to Mark chapter 6, verses 1 through 13. I'm reading from the English Standard Version with the UK spellings, but I think you'll still understand it. Hear God's word. He went away from there, that is Jesus, and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? And what is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hand? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages. And he called the twelve, and he began to send them out two by two, and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. He charged them to take nothing for their journey except a staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals, and not to put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you depart from there. And if any place will not receive you, and they will not listen to you, when you leave, shake off the dust that is on your feet as a testimony against them. So they, so they went out and proclaimed that people should repent. And they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. This is God's word for his church. Let's pray. Lord, this is a strange way to preach to a people. It's exhausting and peculiar. And yet we believe your word still has power. And so in this unique time, a time filled with much fear and anxiety, a time full of doubt and uncertainty. Would you please, Father, speak powerfully through your word by your spirit, so that all of us, having heard your word, might say, we have heard you speak to us today, and conduct ourselves differently, as a people more filled with hope, more confident of our identity in the gospel, and more confident that you're calling us to join this great mission and love our neighbors. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. The year was 1918, and Toronto's chief medical officer's name was Charles Hastings. He didn't want to cause a panic. In fact, he kind of felt that maybe some of the news about the Spanish flu was fake news. But the flu came, and it came big time to Toronto. It knocked out many in our city, and in the city of Toronto, there were already many young men away fighting in the First World War. Vigilant social distancing was required, schools were closed, theaters were closed, people were forced to walk as opposed to using transit, and churches were closed. And at that time, one minister here in Toronto, ministering in a church not too far from where I am right now, a minister named A.J. Fiddler, an Anglican priest in Toronto, thought closing the churches was unnecessary and even unchristian. And he wrote his opinion in the local newspaper, that he did not want to shut down the church. And at the time, the Toronto medical officer, Charles Hasting, responded back in the paper saying he was utterly offended at the arrogance of Pastor Fiddler. 
and he told Pastor Fiddler that people did not need to visit a church to be closer to God. And Fiddler was told that he needed a truer concept of God's relationship to man and man's to humanity if he wanted to understand anything about loving this city. He was utterly offended that anyone would assume that church was worth attending in the face of risks. Now say what you want, we're in the midst of a similar uh, pandemic, a very serious virus is spreading, and as of last week, our church was closed, but there were some debates, even in our paper, some debates from the local Catholic church uh, explained why some people were disappointed that churches were closing so quickly. And within minutes of these uh, articles being written and put online, the comment section, which Christians should probably never read, the comment section were very quickly closed down because people were so utterly offended that someone might find church attendance something so important they would be willing to risk their health. Now, I'm not saying that we should be rethinking closing churches. I think we're doing what's right and loving our neighbors by not gathering together during this season. But the question I want to ask is, why are people so utterly offended by the idea that a group of people want to assemble together and worship Jesus? Maybe a deeper question, why are people so offended by Jesus? We're in a particular moment where the medical profession has told us to stay uh, away from gathering, and yet as we think about gathering, as we long to gather, there's people who are offended by the Christian community even wanting to be brought together. Why is that? Maybe I'll be more specific. A couple of months ago, a congregant came to me and informed me that though he's the CEO of his company, he was brought before HR and notified that somebody was offended that he had a paper Bible on his desk. It triggered an employee, and he was forced to go in front of all the employees and apologize for having this Bible out. Why is Christianity, why is Jesus, why is the church so offensive to many? Last summer, our church put a lot of effort into inviting neighbors to come to a kids' camp, and we, I was able to get some of my next-door neighbors to come to this camp. Halfway through the camp, my neighbor called me and told me that they had to remove their child from the camp because it was too religious. Why is it that being uh, teaching kids about Jesus is considered offensive? Why must we keep kids away? Why is it that your co-workers, my neighbors, your friends, my friends, find Jesus offensive, whether you're in Toronto or Del Delaware. You see, the consistent response to Jesus throughout the ages is either trust and surrender and faith or offense. And this passage, I think, tells us a little bit as to why, uh, what is so offensive about Jesus, but it also tells us what Jesus does when he's labeled by a society as offensive. So that's what I want to look at this morning. What is offensive about Jesus? and how Jesus responds to being labeled offensive. So first, let's talk about what's so offensive about Jesus. You see, in Mark's gospel up to this point, Jesus has been on sort of a whirlwind tour. He's kind of a rock star. He's calmed the storms. He's cast out demons. Uh, and the high point of his ministry, he raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. He's attained something like celebrity status. And now he's coming back home to the hometown Nazareth, a small insignificant town not even mentioned in the Old Testament or other writings. Historians estimate there was probably only about 500 people 
in population at this town. And here he comes, this rock star with his entourage, the disciples uh, right next to him. He's a big deal. When Drake comes back into Toronto, a city of three million people go crazy. This is a small town and their hometown boy is coming back in town. And at first the people are astonished by him. You can see it in the passage. But by verse three, what happens? Well, they're offended. Why? Why are they offended? Well, well, the questions they ask of Jesus give us some kind of hint as to why they were offended. They ask, where did this man get this thing? Yeah, who, he, this couldn't be original to him. He had to have stolen it from somebody, somewhere. Where did it come from? You see, they don't take offense to the content of what Jesus was announcing, that the kingdom of God was at hand, that God was going to work powerfully in the world and make all things right. They're not actually offended that God could do that. They're offended not by the content of what Jesus is teaching, but by the source of the teaching. It was coming from Jesus. It was coming from the man that they knew as the local handyman. It's coming from Jesus. They knew his sisters. Maybe they had dated his sisters, so to speak, to speak anachronistically. We're talking about the Jesus that they, they uh, knew, that they shopped next to, that they did business with. How in the world is a handyman going to be the one who God uses to powerfully bring in his kingdom? Small town, tradesperson, he's too common. He's too ordinary. And you can tell that they're very angry because look how they identify Jesus in verse 3. Remember, this is a very patriarchal society. And what do they, who do they refer to Jesus as? The son of Joseph? No. The son of Mary. We're, we're talking about Jesus, the carpenter, who was born a little bit after the wedding ceremony to Mary. And she, there's some question about her ethical behavior. This isn't the, the son of Joseph. This is the son of Mary. The Durham scholar, Dr. Cranfield, says perfectly in his commentary on this passage. He says this, Their very familiarity with Jesus is the hindrance to them knowing him truly, for it makes it all the more hard for them to see through the veil of his ordinariness. Another scholar writes, their discernment could not penetrate the veil of ordinariness that surrounded him. He is just too common. He's too ordinary. This couldn't be how God was working to set all things right, to bring salvation to God's people. And so not only do they reject Jesus' teaching, but they're offended by it. Strangely, I think this is why my neighbors find Jesus offensive as well. I think this is why ministering in Toronto, and I'm guessing Wilmington, Delaware, is getting so much harder. Because we live in a city that's enjoyable to live in. Things are going well. And if God was going to work in our world, if God was going to bring some salvation into our world, it would have to be so extraordinary. It couldn't come through the preaching uh, from a book, from reading about a biography of a man named Jesus by trusting in this Jesus by faith. It couldn't come that way. It must be more extraordinary, more exotic. This is why I found ministering in Toronto to be so hard. I don't know if you know this, but Toronto's nickname in the past was Toronto the Good. By the, start, by the start of the 20th century, Toronto was known as a city of churches. The most busy time on the sidewalk was Sunday evening as, as citygoers walked to their Sunday evening services. In 1890, the Methodists alone had 19 churches in the city of Toronto that could seat over 1,000. 
The mayor at the time, William, William Howland, frequently preached at the pulpits. It was said that he filled every pulpit in the city at one time. The biggest papers in the city were both run by elders of Presbyterian churches at one point. To put things into perspective, Chicago at the turn of the century at the same time was a little bit bigger of a city, but it had one-sixth the number of churches that Toronto had. You may not know this, but Ernest Hemingway came to write for the Toronto Star in the 1920s, and some letters uh, have been left where he describes Toronto in not-so-beautiful terms, but in one of them, he has to leave Paris to come back to Toronto for work, and he takes the Lord's name in vain. He says, I hate to leave Paris for Toronto, the city of churches. But what is to come of all this hard work, all this church growth, all this great uh, discipleship that was taking place in Toronto in the turn of the century? Well, something happened where familiarity bred contentment, like so many other things in our world. And over time, people began to say, oh, Jesus, we know him. We, we have him figured out. And people began to add other things to allegiance to Jesus. They began to think of bigger and better things to be important and, and, and known for, things like money and status and reputation and power, about the future, a global integrated economy. And they started assuming that they understood and had Jesus figured out, so much so that their kids had very little knowledge of, of who Jesus is, to the point now where their grandchildren, some of the people I'm ministering to, and their great-grandchildren, the people I am certainly ministering to, came to a place where some of them don't even know anything about the good news of Jesus Christ. By the 60s, by and large, the church attendance in Toronto plummeted. And if it wasn't for the mass amount of immigrants that the Lord has brought to Toronto, all the churches in our city would, would be sitting empty. There's a way to be so familiar with Jesus, a way to assume you have him figured out, that will leave your kids and eventually your grandkids and certainly your great-grandkids totally ignoring and ignorant of who he is and what he came to do. You see, part of following Jesus is he must surprise you and he must offend you at times. But when you understand who he is and when you begin to find him uh, manageable and ordinary, he no longer has the ability to challenge you. You've got him figured out. My guess is this week, some of you watched the markets tank and watched your hard-earned money disappear. And right now, right now, your thoughts about who Jesus is and how he runs the world are being challenged. You see, if Jesus isn't surprising you from time to time, challenging you to trust, to believe he is who he says he is, you might just be worshiping an idol, an idol that you control and have mastery over, and you might find yourself being led astray, and you might yourself begin to lead others astray, as is what happened in Toronto. This is why they found Jesus offensive. He was too ordinary. They understood everything about him. They had him figured out. There's no way he could be the means to which God worked powerfully. But what does Jesus do when he's found to be offensive? Let's next look at how Jesus responds to being labeled offensive. What does he do? Does he change the message? Does he argue? Does he call for a public debate? How does he respond to being labeled offensive? Look closely at the passage. He's not totally surprised about being rejected. He, he quotes a somewhat common figure of speech, at least I presume. Verse 4, a prophet is not without honor in his hometown. 
In verse 5 and 6, he, he actually marvels. He, he can't believe their unbelief. And we read that he can't do any mighty works there. Now, this kind of verse creates noise in your mind. Does this mean that sort of faith is the gas and the car can't go forward unless there's faith? Jesus can't do any miracles unless there's faith, as is so common in some of the uh, Pentecostal and uh, charismatic movements teachings today? No, I don't think that that's what this passage is teaching. And I don't think charismatics or Pentecostals at their best teach this either. What Jesus is saying is, look, he has the power to do miracles without faith. He calmed the storm only a couple of verses earlier, and there were no faith in the disciples in the boat. What Jesus is saying is his miracles would confuse his purpose. His miracles would mislead people. They wouldn't help people understand who he is and what he came to do and what he came to bring. And so what does he do? He's been labeled offensive, and he goes on to other villages and sends out the twelve. This is how Jesus responds to being labeled offensive. He moves on. He moves on. Now, I need to be extremely careful how I say this. Some of this is mysterious into God's sovereign working out of his plan. But at some point... Jesus has so dignified, God, sorry, has so dignified humanity that a lack of faith in Jesus, a defiance in Jesus, pushes him to a situation where he moves on. At some point, Jesus says, Thy will be done to those who label him offensive. And he moves on. Now, I don't know that my generation understands this very well, but there's an older generation that does. And I've been reading the biography of a great Canadian Presbyterian minister named Stanford Reed. He was an academic. He's one of the first uh, people to graduate from Westminster Theological Seminary. And he served on the board for a long time of Westminster. His father was actually a Presbyterian minister, and they were raised in, his father was uh, pastored rural Anglophone uh, churches in Quebec. There was a high uh, resettlement of Scottish people in Quebec. And his father tells the story of, of one Sunday having a guest preacher come and preaching an unbelievably powerful sermon. And the sermon uh, just absolutely uh, uh, convicted the pastor, brought him to a place of repentance and prayer. But it had absolutely no effect on the congregation. And this pastor knew something had to be wrong. He went from house to house and he said, why in the world are we in the place where this word had no power over us? And eventually he found one man who said he understood why God chose not to work through this preacher's preached message because he had been holding a grudge against a brother in the congregation. And this pastor, Pastor Reed, persuaded him to go and forgive this brother publicly, and he did it. And upon forgiving this brother, so Pastor Reed writes in his biography, a great revival broke out in this town, not with immediate and massive acceptance of Christ, but slow and surely a growth of the church, and many people coming to a place where they really understood their sins, really repented and turned from their sins for the first time, and the Spirit began to move powerfully in this humble little church. You see, this little town almost missed God's power coming in through this preaching of the Word. But here's a town, Nazareth, which did miss because of their unbelief. Only a few got to experience these miracles. Honestly, this passage tells, teaches me a bit of what it feels like to be working here in Toronto at this time. Maybe God has moved on. Maybe the lack of faith, the familiarity has pushed him to a situation where he's had enough and he's moving forward. But my hope, and the hope of this passage, 
is that Jesus doesn't simply start plan B. In fact, this was all part of his plan all along. He just starts a new phase of his ministry. Because this is the first time he actually sends out the twelve. Previously, this kingdom announcement was only being proclaimed by one man. Now we have six groups of two men proclaiming this message to all kinds of villages. They were spreading God's kingdom announcement everywhere they went. And they were to go out with this attitude of dependence. They had to depend on the local hospitalities, accept whatever meal was put before them, whether that's lamb chops or rice. They were to receive it with gratitude, showing that they had utter dependence on God. But they were to go knowing that they too at times will be considered offensive. They will be rejected. And they go two by two so that they could be witnesses and judgment, in judgment over these cities who reject the gospel. In the rejecting of Jesus's, by Jesus' own friends and family, it's, it was their rejection that f- pushed uh, Jesus into the situation where God's plan of salvation moves forward at a more rapid pace. And in this way, this passage is for us a foreshadow and a preview of what the gospel is all about. The very people Jesus came to live with, the people who taught him how to speak, the people who knew him better than anyone else, and the people he knew better than everyone else. He didn't have to be a student of this culture because he understood this culture completely. It is those people who reject him and eventually join in the crowds and crying, crucify him to Pontius Pilate. But as he hanged there on the cross because of their rejection, His human nature would feel as though God himself had abandoned him. He would feel as though God the Father had rejected him. But in their rejection of him, in his crucifixion, he will atone for, pay the price for, all the sins, the evil, the injustice, the rejection of the whole entire world. The perfect, sinless human, treated as the sinful one, not just by Pilate, but by God himself, but in this rejection and this death on the cross, the means of a perfect salvation would be set forward. He's rejected, we get accepted. This passage is a great comfort to me and to you, that there's no mission that is a waste. Whether you're proclaiming the gospel to people who are rejecting it, or you're proclaiming the gospel in, in, a, in a place where everybody's accepting it, even in our best efforts as we experience rejection, this is the means, the energy by which God will still continue to work powerfully. As I've heard another pastor say, God is a master of judo. He doesn't practice karate, striking at the enemy. He uses the force of the enemy's attack against them. And this passage tells us that we are called to proclaim an offensive gospel. But as people are offended, even as they reject us, the gospel is only going to move forward with greater pace to the ends of the earth. This is exactly what I'm seeing in Toronto. This is exactly what I'm watching as Persian and Chinese and Eritrean churches are filled up like never before. And they now realize that they were sent to Toronto as immigrants to join in this mission of seeing this lost city of people who don't know anything about the good news of Jesus Christ come to a saving relationship with Christ. So I ask you to join in this mission, to share this gospel with your neighbors, even if you get rejected. And consider joining and praying for Christ Church Toronto. Pray that the gospel would go forward powerfully here in Toronto, especially to those neighbors that we are so desperately trying to reach. Would you pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, I thank you for technology in which we can in some ways get together. And I thank you for the saints at Faith Presbyterian Church in Wilmington, Delaware. Would you now add your blessing to your word that we might be transformed by it.
We ask this in the name of Christ our Savior. Amen.